Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. A reading from Jeremiah 29. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter from Jerusalem to a few surviving elders amongst the exiles, to the priests and the prophets, and to all the people Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon from Jerusalem. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims to all exiles that have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, cultivate gardens and eat what they produce, get married and have children, then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they too may have children. Increase in number so, increase in number there so, that you don't dwindle away. Promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you to exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel proclaims, don't let the prophets and diviners in your midst mislead you. Don't pay attention to your dreams. They are prophesizing lies to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. The Lord proclaims, when Babylon's 70 years are up, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. May God add a blessing to the understanding and living of the scripture. So lately, I, uh, as a parent in this neighborhood, I found myself having a very uh, frequent conversation with other parents in the neighborhood uh, or, uh, or other people that know that I've lived here for a while kind of engage me uh, in this same questioning and conversation about, um, about whether or not we should stay or we should go uh, uh, from living in this neighborhood. Um, this question pops up often. Oh, uh, are you planning to move soon? You know, we have a small two-bedroom place. Um, people assume one day there might be a, a second child or, um, or just that we, you know, might want a place that has a little bit more space and a little bit more room. So the question comes up, should we move to another neighborhood where we can get more house for less money? You know, drive to the qualify is something uh, talk about in real estate sometimes. <clears throat> um, or when Sela gets a little bit older, is school age, should we move to a suburb with better schools or maybe a better state that has better school funding? Or should we move closer to family? Um, but both Emily and I are from uh, the West, so you know it might be nice to move closer to family and have uh, extra hands so that we're not up here uh, <laughs> preaching together. <laughs> or should we move to a place that has uh, better weather? Um, you know, uh, I think this is a common theme that comes up. Um, Every year when people graduate, they ask, oh, uh, do you ever consider sticking around? They're like, oh, no, I can't handle the weather, especially if they're from California. Um, or they can, be from, they can be from here, but they still want to move because now is their chance to move to a place with more sunshine, less winters, although last winter wasn't so bad, 
So if you just moved here, just watch out. Um, <laughs> or is it just time for a new adventure and move to a different city, different state, different country? You know, one thing that's not far from the imagination of most folks, I think, in this neighborhood, um, uh, even those that have been here for a long time, is uh, the possibility of living somewhere else rather than living here. And I'm guessing it's not just for parents, but if you're a grad student, um, if you're starting out in your career, or whether the neighborhood has changed so much than what you grew up with um, that you might want to seek something else. So you could say that the Jewish exiles that were in Babylon today, um, that we read in our scripture, that Jovan read, were imagining something similar. Although their case was a little bit different, their imaginations and dreams were clearly set on moving somewhere else, on moving back, instead of anywhere, back to one place, moving back to Jerusalem. And this makes sense because they were exiles. They weren't people who uh, chose to move here for school or who just kind of grew up here. Um, but they were people who were forcibly, forcibly removed from their homes to live captive in the land of their Babylonian conquerors. And we can sense their longing to return home in Psalm 137, which uh, Giovanni can throw up, um, which the psalmist writes on behalf of these exiles. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. So you can clearly see here in this psalm that the exiles dreamt and hoped beyond hope that they'd return one day back to Jerusalem. And if you missed it, they also dreamt that their captors' children would be taken away and smashed against the rocks. And since Emily's not here... I'll just point out that the Bible has a lot of Game of Thronesy imagination uh, about <laughs> You know, uh, I've heard a lot of people squeamish about that show, and, uh, you know, the Bible's got it all. Incest, murder, uh, all sorts of broken relationships, uh, conquest, but uh, that's the Bible for you, right? Are you okay? <laughs> so it must come... It must have come as a complete shock that the prophet Jeremiah, to these exiles, delivers an unacceptable message from God, that they're just going to have to stick around Babylon for another 70 years. Now that basically means that none of them will ever get to go back home again. And it's against this backdrop that Jeremiah warns the exiles to guard against false prophets who offer false hope that they'll get to return home soon. In fact, later on, Jeremiah points out that there's another prophet named Hananiah who was preaching a message that told everyone they get to go home in two years. 
and people wanting to hear an optimistic message liked what they hear and they were drawn to that prophecy. But Jeremiah says, that's a bunch of lies. Buckle up, it's going to be another 70 years. And I'm just going to go on a little tangent here, speaking of false hope and false prophets. It should be clear by now that in light of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville this past week, that America is not past our country's original sin of white supremacist racism. And anyone say, who says that we're past that legacy and the effects of white supremacy, slavery, segregation, internment, racist immigration policies are false prophets. <clears throat> Our monuments, other monuments like the Robert E. Lee statue that we're standing in Charlottesville, they still exist in other places. And even when and if they are removed, their demonic ghosts will continue to haunt us and raise new folks to march on their behalf. Our real prophets are the ones who make us confront that difficult reality of white supremacy and structural racism. And we will preach those prophets over and over again. So the psalmist and the prophet Jeremiah, they, they reveal this tension that we live in as the people of God, that a people of this world, that there is a tension between the demand for justice now, the demand and need to go back home, for things to be restored and reconciled, and the continuing persistence of injustice and sin. That these things are intention that, one, that the, uh, the arc of justice is long, but at the same time that the need for justice is immediate now. And Jeremiah is trying to live into this reality. He presents the sense of future hope that won't exist for the people that are currently in exile, and it won't be until their grandchildren that people get to go home, but also this sense that there is a need for justice. And, and the psalm allows this expression to be made. I don't know what God has to say about that, and God speaks through Jeremiah in response to that need, not just for justice, but for revenge, for this desire to take their children and dash them against the rocks. But that's the tension that the Bible lives in, that we live in, and we are called into. But going back to Jeremiah, he not only tells the exiles the harsh reality that they'll never get to see Jerusalem again, but then he tells them he should accept that reality and just settle down. Get married, have kids, help their kids get married, you know, find some spouses for them, and then help them have kids, and most unacceptably, to work and pray for the welfare and flourishing of the entire city, which includes their enemies, and not just their own exile community. It's a tough message for sure. But what I hear God is asking them to do is to turn at least some of their imagination about their place in the, in the world from just being in Jerusalem, this idea, the only place that they can ever imagine being somewhere far away that they'll never get to, 
to imagining life, living life where they are. Biblical scholars point out that this message that Jeremiah provides about seeking the welfare of the city is actually a lot about just seeking their own self-interest. Because if they've got to stay, then it does nobody no good if things fall apart in the city, because then things fall apart for them too. Or if the city gets attacked, then the chaos that ensues uh, falls upon them too. But I don't think we just have to read that cynically into this message about seeking the welfare of the city or finding a place, settling down and trying to flourish in a place where they don't want to be but they're stuck with. He's making the difficult request for them to imagine creating life and community right where they are. Imagine having and raising kids there. Imagine building a home there. Imagine creating a neighborhood. Imagine that there is some degree of mutuality between the welfare of your enemies and that of your own. And I wonder, can we imagine this? None of us are, I'm guessing, are exiled here. But can you imagine having kids and helping them find partners and have your grandkids raised in the city, in the neighborhood where you are now, in the place where you are now, in the street where you are now? Can you imagine bringing your grandkids to this church in 40 years? All right, so I'm not saying God wants you to have kids and have grandkids. Let's say you don't want to get married, that's fine. Let's say you don't want to have kids, that's fine. But can you at least imagine that this becomes your community, that this place where you are now, wherever it is you are in the city, that that place becomes your neighborhood? that this city might come to define your identity as much as your job or your career or whatever it is is the thing that initially draw you, drew you here. Can you at least imagine that in this community at UBC that our baptism defines your identity, that you might be willing to stay with your brothers and sisters, creating a lasting community whose welfares are tied up with each other, in this city, in this neighborhood. Can you imagine that? For a lot of us, I imagine it's actually difficult to imagine. Let's say you want to have kids. You want to move to a bigger home, preferably for less money. And when they're old enough, you want to send them to the best schools. Or maybe you might imagine that what's best for your career is just not to be tied down to one place, that you want to keep your options open, that you're willing to go anywhere in the country to pursue your career. Or maybe you'd rather move close to your family, and let's be honest, even if we wanted to stay where we are, the forces of public policy and economics will make it impossible for some of us to stay. There's a lot conspiring against our imaginations and our abilities for staying and committing instead of moving. I really do think that one of the great false prophecies of our time that conspires against this imagining, this commitment to this city, is this idea that comes up in especially liberal circles again, this idea of neoliberalism. Now this term gets thrown out a lot, so I'm going to just kind of define what I mean when I say neoliberalism. It's 
It's this idea or about this influence or invasion of capitalist market logic that enters into all spheres of our life. How we view ourselves, how we view our relationships, how we view our neighborhoods and our cities. So let's say in the case of our neighborhoods, the neoliberal lens looks at our houses and our apartments and our condos and our streets, not as homes or communities, but they look them at them as investments. Can we flip this place? Can we tear this place down and build a high rise? What responsibility do we have to our tenants? This kind of imagination gets erased. And the ultimate culmination of this ideology is that these places become investments. We don't, our apartments and our condos and our homes no longer become a place to live, although we do do that. But ultimately, we get to see how our wealth is tied up into it. And if you look at the history of redlining and uh, American housing policy, this, things are deliberately created this way. And according to writer Peter Moskowitz, he defines this neoliberalism or this kind of gentrification as a form of profit and power and racism and violence that just happens on a massive social scale. But this doesn't just happen in how we define the places we live, but it also creeps into how we think about ourselves and the work we do. Theologian Jonathan Malisic makes the observation that Americans really struggle to describe worthwhile long-term activities without turning them into jobs. So we always talk about marriage as work. And Emily might be talking about that now. Parenting is a job. It's the hardest job one can have. Life itself is hard work. The pervasiveness of the words of work and job really helps to perpetuate the message in American culture that you exist to work. And yes, life is a lot of hard work. We have to do the things that make life possible. That, there's no doubt about that. We need to put bread on the table. We need shelter. We need to provide for our families. But when we emphasize that our primary existence is based on our work, then our calculation about how we think about our vocations are less about how we are living and serving our communities, our families, our neighborhoods, and the world, and more about the actual thing that we do. Our vocation is defined by what we do than why we do it and who we do it for. And so then finding a community to have, then we just have to find a community to haphazardly attach ourselves to, so long as it fits into our career goals, so long as it fits into what we do. This neoliberal lens has a very weak sense of place. It can never imagine that people stay in one place for 70 years. It doesn't imagine stable employment or reasonable work schedule. It doesn't imagine that people exist for community rather than for work. It imagines that people will become what journalist David Goodhart calls everyone becoming anywheres. People who are transient and have weak group attachments. What Goodhart reports is that these anywheres are less dependent on public services and often feel they're less affected by political decision, decisions. And this is opposed to what he calls as people who are still somewheres. People who are more rooted to a place who see their lives much more affected by political decisions and the lives of others. 
political scientists often theorize that one of the main reasons that young people don't vote is that they're much more transi transient and they don't feel a sense of much, that much is at stake politically for them, especially on the local level. And so I must confess that when I first moved to this neighborhood, when I first moved to Chicago as a grad student, I didn't really ever vote in local elections. Because as a grad student who presumably was getting trained to go somewhere else to work, it was hard for me to imagine how my welfare would be affected by who the alderman was, or who my state representative was, or even who the mayor was. I didn't imagine how my welfare was tied up in the welfare of this neighborhood, this city, and even this state. Part of it was definitely that I didn't imagine that I'd still be here 10 years, 10, 11 years later. But what if, instead of seeing ourselves through this lens, what if we think about ourselves and the work we do and the vocations that we have and be that begin that question of what do I want to, rather than beginning with the question, what do I want to do, we begin with the question, who are my people? Who do I do this for? Who do I work for? Who do I live for? Who are the people that my mutual welfare is tied up with? It's an important reminder for us that God's primary calling for us as God's people as related to Abraham is that we are to be first and foremost a people, that we are to be God's people. We are to be brothers and sisters and non-gender binary siblings to one another. Our primary identity should be one that is formed by our baptism and its commitments and not our work or our careers. Our other main sacramental act outside of baptism is that we eat together at this table where Jesus is the host. Our imagining for who we should be through our baptism and our communion with God and with each other, it should be through this table, through our sense of baptism. Can we imagine life together through that lens? Imagine that our welfare is bound up with each other, that we are somehow all vital members of the body of Christ, that each of us not only has a role to play, but just exist for the joy of others. Then expand that imagining in this community, in that <clears throat> baptism, and expand that into our neighborhood, into our city, into our state, our nation, and the world. Imagine that you have a place, a home, a church, a neighborhood, a city, where your welfare is mixed up with the welfare of others. Imagine that we view this city as we commit to it, as we view our neighborhoods through the lens of the people that are there. You know, one of the funny things about uh, the imagery that people often convey when we talk about the city is we always show pictures of the skyline, right? Now, like, we'll throw some distant pictures of people, you know, people in the city, but they could be anyone. You know, one of the things I used to do is I used to help design church websites. And one of the things I noticed, a uh, mistake that churches made over and over again, was that the only pictures on the church website was the pictures of their building. Now, aesthetics are important, architecture is important, right? But I'm guessing most of you, when you were looking for a church to go to, 
if you've ever gone web surfing to do that, I know many of you have, that the last thing that was going to draw you to a church was the outside of its building, or was a beautiful stained glass window. Now, it might be worth going to take a tour of that place, but I imagine you would rather have a sense of who actually goes there. Who are the people that you're going to be in community with? Who are the people, are these people going to commit to you? Can you commit to them? Do you have a place? Can you serve there? Are you allowed to serve there based on who you are? Is it a place for you to bring your whole selves, to grow, to be challenged, to be nurtured? This is how we ought to imagine our city. Not just as places with good weather or bad weather, not just places with just big homes or small homes, not just places with good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods, but of people whose lives that we are mutually tied into. Now it should be noted that the exiles that we read here in today's story are stuck in Babylon because God's actually punishing them. <laughs> but I'm assuming none of us are here being punished by God and being forced to be here for another seven years. And I'm not saying God right now is making you stay here for 70 years. But take a moment and imagine what your life and participation might look like, however long you will be here, if you're actually fully committed to its welfare, even if it's just for two years instead of 70. How will you pray? How will you vote? I moved from 5314 South Kimbark to 50. Now 5214 South Kimbark to 5314 South Kimbark and everything changed. I had a new alderman, I had a new voting precinct, I had completely new neighborhoods, less uh, party students, which was really nice. I'm sure. <laughs> um, what news will you read? You know, one of the things that I found myself when I first moved here is all I read was national news. It probably wasn't until three or four years uh, that I lived here that I actually spent some time reading the Tribune, reading the Sun-Times. Where will you shop? How will you party? How will you protest? How will you see what's happening in Charlottesville? How does that relate to what's going on here? And we know there's a lot going on here. And while we're not here by punishment, we are here for a purpose, on purpose, and foremost for each other. And even in mutual welfare who do not look out for our own welfare. None of us will ever save the city on our own. But we are all members of the body for whose kingdom we pray and hope for every Sunday at this church. And may that one day come. Amen. So I come this morning to this table that Rich talked about, uh, struggling for the right words. Um, as I, probably along with many of you, uh, continue to witness the unfolding horror of what's happening in Charlottesville, um, as white nationalists perpetrate acts of white Christian terrorism, um, I tremble a little bit uh, because I see myself in them. Now, many of you know me. You know I'm not 
uh, a white nationalist uh, like they are, uh, maybe a recovering white supremacist. Um, but make no mistake about it, many of them are my kin. Um, they're my cousins, my aunts and uncles, my schoolmates, my friends. Their sin is mine. And as I come to this table, I realize that we, and I mean myself and my fellow white kin, um, must go through a long process of self-examination, confession, repentance, reparation, and amendment of life before we can dare to hope for absolution from God and from those we have injured and killed. So I come to this table to confess that sin and to rededicate myself to the eradication of white supremacy in this land. It's time to get our house in order. And this table, these elements, are where we begin. When we gather at this table, we remember that Jesus, who invites us here, was himself trampled by the very forces of evil and oppression that my siblings of, co of color have enabled, have endured under white supremacy. At this table, we recall one whose body was brutalized and whose life was extinguished because those who held power were threatened by it. And so at this table, we rehearse every week a counter-narrative to the discrimination and the racism many of, those, many of us in this room have experienced in our everyday lives. This meal is a protest here we proclaim that the future of God's imagining has no place for racism, for discrimination, or for violence. Thanks be to God. At this table, we recall the words Jesus shared with his community, um, knowing that he would be heading into the loneliest hours of his life, um, that is, at the cross and at Golgotha, the night he was betrayed. He was with some of his friends uh, in an upper room uh, at a table, and he took a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks, and he said to them, this is my body. It is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, and remember me. For you see, friends, brothers, sisters, siblings, as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim our Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. Let us pray. To the God whom we've forgotten, to the God who is not white, to the God who takes no pleasure in violence, to the God who is love, to the God who is not deaf to her children's cries and is moved to tears by their suffering, to the God whose love of neighbor, hospitality for the stranger, and care for the weak is God's law. To the God who is justice, 
to the God who tramples fear and hatred under her feet, to the God whose own, ch- whose own child's lynched body hung limp on a tree, not by her own hand, but because of the fear and hatred of those human beings who feared the kind of world they were promised would be ushered in and hated the changes they would have to undergo to get there. Our short memories, our failure to remember the sins of our parents, our aversion to repentance, our refusal to make reparations, all of it is killing us. O God, whom we have forgotten, forgive us, save us, transform us. We pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Each in our own heart's tongue, we say, Our Father and Mother,